Okay. All right, what'd you get from the first uh, round there of thoughts? What's sticking on your mind? Give me some feedback. Dualism is bad. It can be hurtful, actually. Mm -hmm. Comparison will kill me. What's that? Learn and give. Learn and give, absolutely. God can teach us in the work of life, the mundane of life. Got another character of God to get through the tough places, man. Anybody else? Anything sticking in your mind? Yes, Sue. Mm. Yes. Amen. Praise God. You just convicted a few people in here, Sue. That was awesome. Thank you. Um, but isn't it amazing when? When you have a revelation or somebody profoundly affects one life, that it profoundly affects thousands of lives. One, I, I, like, I like what one person said this way, one act of brokenness blesses millions. If, if, if you find God in a place of brokenness in your life and you share that with others in a healthy, holy way, it'll bless millions of people. God doesn't waste revelation. Um, or I used to use the phrase, the brokenness of one causes the blessing of millions. Yeah. You know, just a fun story, just on the side, is uh, I used to be on um, the, um, a board called Sentinel, which is George Otis's uh, board, the transformation guys. And um, there was a guy on the board with us named Paul Morwing, and Paul was um, the international director, or he had been for uh, Integrity Music. And um, I remember when we were getting to know him, and he shared the story uh, of, um, of a particular group of people. I'll, I won't tell you the name. We'll get to it. Well, no, actually, I'll have to tell you on the front end. So he told the story about Hillsongs and how it all went international, or how it went big. Um, in the late 1980s, Paul uh, was charged with finding new upcoming music, and they really felt like they would start highlighting churches, that there were certain churches that were owning worship and doing, and things were emerging, and somebody had connected with them with what was going on in Australia, and so what they would do was they would offer the church, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll cut the album as long as we feel like we can break even, and then wherever it goes, we'll just see, uh, but your agreement is that you'll have everything set up for us, we'll come do the recording, and then we'll at least make it available to people. Well, um, Hillsong's uh, was set up to be one of those. Nobody knew who they were other than unless you just lived in the local area. And um, their worship leader, the, Paul gets a call about two weeks before they're supposed to go down and do their first recording and that the worship leader had been exposed to be in sexual sin and they had to step down. And Paul said, well, I guess the deal's just done. And they said, well, if you're willing to just, we'll pay your expenses, you'll just come down and do it. We've got a couple other worship leaders. We'll, we'll, we'll try to figure something out, but we feel like God still wants us to do it. They prayed about it, and he said, you know, we feel like we're still supposed to do it, and we'll, we'll just trust God with the, with the outcome. So when they, when they went down there, um, there was uh, the, the, one, of the, one of the up-and-coming people that they were kind of training and everything was a gal named Darlene Check, and she had took over for the one that she was going to lead this album. She wasn't the worship leader of everything, but she was going to lead this album. And she had had a broken place where her, I think her father had passed away or something. And, um, uh, and, 
out of it, she had written a song. And so when they got there, they already had the set list, the 15 songs they were going to do. And Darlene said to Paul and the team when they got there in Australia, she said, you know, God's really put this little song on my heart. It came out of a deep place in my own life. And could I just share it with you? And Paul said she just faced the wall on the piano and started playing Shout to the Lord. Paul said the presence of God filled the room, and they said that's got to be on the album. And the name of the album was Shout to the Lord. And millions and millions, maybe even to a billion uh, songs later and etc., um, the world is being touched by this move of God through their music. Her brokenness, and even the brokenness of uh, a failure in someone's life, caused the blessing to millions. Isn't that a great story? God's in control, man. You know, we just serve God and do what he says. And who knows? And again, whether anybody ever knows your name or not, you can still bless millions of people, by the way. Uh, do you know that the Moravians of the late 1700s were the catalyst to the Great Awakening in America? The Moravians, they chose always the low road, the narrow road, and the hard place. But their passion for Jesus that was so steeped in the cross and their zeal for sacrifice ran into a guy named John Wesley on a boat headed back to England after John Wesley had failed as a missionary to the Indians. John Wesley writes, there's something about the passion in their hearts that I know nothing of. There's something about the reality of Christ that is so real I need to have it myself. He, in his words, got saved through the witness of the Moravians, continued to fellowship with them, went to Hernhut, got the fire that was going on in them, and came back to America, and, and with George Whitfield and others, started the Great Awakening, both in England and in America. The catalysts were the Moravians. Until just maybe 20 years ago, very few people would even have known who the Moravians were. But they were the catalysts to reaching the unreached of the world. They were the first Europeans that were these deep sacrificial people that really caused the islands to be reached, especially the Caribbean, uh, because they made Jesus their passion and, and the Spirit of God the centerpiece of who they were, and they gave away everything they had. And God found people that would pick it up and take it in a broader context, but I guarantee you that that group of five Moravians that talked to Wesley on the boat on the way back have just as much reward in heaven as John Wesley does uh, because they were living out what God told them to do. So you never know whether you're a Moravian or whether you're a John Wesley, but right, we're not comparing ourselves, so who cares? Right? Glory to God. And when we get to heaven, we'll see uh, what all happens. Amen. All right. Um, Charles, why don't you ask that question you just asked me? And we'll, we'll go into that, and then, I'll, then we're going to talk about suffering. Uh, the one you just, the last one you asked me about, how do you know as a builder, you know, time you spend, what does it take, and all that kind of stuff, just in general. Yeah, and, and, and one of Charles Lee's questions was, you know, how do you do it all? Or, uh, you know, these people you quote or these things that you know, how did you learn all that? And, you know, how do you do all of it and still build something and all this? Um, and what, what my answer was this. In my 20s, I made a decision to say yes to a few things and no to everything else and lived a very, very narrow life in the sense of 
Um, these values of spending time with Jesus, of fasting, of prayer, of learning how to grow in the basics of my own personal faith, of learning how to pray for the sick, of learning how to move in the supernatural, of um, uh, discipling people. I would always just have people, I, I didn't go anywhere without somebody investing in people's lives, um, trying to learn how to do church, reaching out to people, sharing the gospel, all that. Just the basic values. I did the basic values, I discipled people, and took whatever I was given and tried to make it fruitful. And what I was given nothing to start with, and then I was given eight people when we started this training school, and I did that for four years. Then I was given 60 college students, then I was given a church, and then I was given a church plant. And then, so whatever I was given, I tried to be fruitful and diligent, and it, it grew and multiplied. But today, then... By going like this, we've got an, a ministry like this. So now what used to take a year, in five minutes, I can have a conversation and reach 500 people. What In the early days, it would take me a year to reach five people that I felt like were going to take the ministry on and multiply it. And what I was telling uh, Charles was, um, when you give or are given a responsibility... You can't sit around and wait for somebody else to give you the people, the personnel, and the resources to make it happen. You have to take whatever God's given you and act as if no one's going to help you, and you have to disciple and pull your own into it to make it fruitful. And when you have that attitude, you're going to continue to bear fruit, expand, and learn and grow because you have to. When you have a victim mentality and you're expecting everybody else to carry the day for you, you end up frustrated, bitter, and may end up leaving the organization. We are an entrepreneurial organization. We have more support than we ever have had for people. We have more helps, more tools, more resources than we've ever had before. But at the core of who we are, it will always be based around people that are willing to take responsibility for whatever they're given and build it into something that looks like Jesus. And if you don't have that mentality, you'll blame everybody else for why you can't do what you do. Nobody's stopping you from sharing the gospel today and getting some disciples and starting a house church movement in Waco. Nobody's stopping you from, uh, from seeking God and fasting and praying more than anybody else. Nobody's stopping you from praying for more sick people than anybody else. Nobody's stopping you from prophesying over everything that moves and hearing God like never before. You have a lot of liberty. Now, whether we're going to let you stand up in front of a thousand people and do that, that may take a little time. So if you can gather a thousand, then do it. You know, does that make sense? So personal responsibility is a big deal. The other thing that Charles asked me was, what was your schedule like? in the early days. As I get a little older, my schedule is different than it was in the early days. In the early days, when you're building something, you have to live a little more narrow and you gotta, you, you've got to put a little more into it. And your hopes are that as you get older and you don't have as much strength as you did in your early days, that you um, uh, can just find that the Spirit of God will give you more space and grace in different areas. But you know, in the early days, I've We'd go to bed at midnight, I'd get up at five, like clockwork, and I had every hour scheduled, basically. Not in some legalistic, obsessive sense, but I wanted to build something to change the world. And that's just how life fell. And um, uh, where I made mistakes that I think I paid for later on in my life is not taking seriously a Sabbath, a full court press, 24-hour period of time that it is just pulling the plug on everything. Um, because I had energy to run, I used energy to run. And you can't run off adrenaline uh, that long. And so I have paid a price, I think, physically, and in some of the challenges we'll talk about here in, uh, later. But 
the, but the main point is, is that when you're building something, if there's passion and vision and clarity, then give yourself to it. Put your shoulder into it. Just go for it. If it's God, go for it. If it's not God, you need to reevaluate it. But if it is God, as we talked about yesterday, there's grace to really give yourself to it. And then what happens is if you say yes to a few things and no to everything else, you'll build something that has reproductive life in it. And now we have the best team in the world. I mean, we're, we're 10 deep in leaders and all this great stuff. And it's not just about me, obviously. We've had so many great people taking it way beyond anything I've done. But it was my hope and belief that we would see a movement eventually if I would just do a few things well. Does that make sense? And the willingness then to pay the price to do it. You know, when somebody said, well, what, what are your hobbies? Well, the first 10 years of ministry, I mean, I played golf once a year. That was just the nature of what we did. My hobby was changing diapers uh, in my own kids and in spiritual children uh, as well. You know, somebody said, well, you know, you're really not into counseling. You know, I, I'm, I'm not into counseling either, and I'm 24 years old. Do you know that I had 16 appointments a week counseling, prophetic ministry, inner healing. That's, that's, that was my sheep. Therefore, our first leadership meeting was a deliverance session with people literally growling, like slithering like snakes on the floor. That was the first leadership team I got. And so... That, that was my life. So to say, you know, like you're really not into the prophetic or inner healing or whatever, you, you don't know what you're saying. If you, if you love people and care for people, you're into that because you want to help people, right? And so that's what I did most of my first 10 years um, was that kind of stuff. And I didn't say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor, I'm apostolic, or I'm a teacher, I don't do this stuff. I did, it, you know, you're a servant is what you are. And then God over time of you serving allows that thing that you do best to kind of emerge uh, in the journey. Um, so, um, yeah. So when you say, what's my part on the team? Of course, we're going to try to find your sweet spot and how you're gifted and your Myers-Briggs and everything else. We're going to try to figure you all out. But in the end, you're still a servant first, right? We're not trying to be like some, you're trying to be like Jesus, right? So he came to serve, not to be served. So everybody's serving, and then gifts emerge in the midst of a servant community uh, that, uh, that allow you to more optimize fruit for the kingdom. But you're not optimizing at 23. You know what I'm saying? You're, you're, you're learning. You're, you're serving. Probably what the greatest thing at 23 is to get self out of you in a way that you actually are willing to serve uh, over the long haul. And, and to be quite honest, just because I love you, if you're in this room and you're 40 and you've never gotten that crucible of, of self-denial, then you're going to get to keep going there until you get it. You know what I'm saying? The great thing about God is you just get to keep looping the mountain until you learn the lesson. You know, or I used to use the illustration, the cross shows up. If you won't get on the cross, if you'll walk around the cross, God will let you, but another cross will show up and another cross. You get rid of one person that bugs you, they'll show up at another name uh, in your next venue. You, you got one thing you don't like to do, you'll get rid of it one time, you'll walk over to this other place and it'll show up again. Until you're willing to die to self and live t for Jesus, uh, and, uh, because you can't give platitudes of passion without a cross in the middle of it. You can't give platitudes of great vision without going through a cross to get there. It's just, that's the way it goes. And uh, everybody's going to get to go to the cross. I mean, I, you know... Um, I wish there were another way. <laughs> I mean that. I mean, I am a wimp. I went from, God, whatever it takes, I would have changed the world. Ooh, God, I'm just, just crucify me and everything else. To man at 47, I'm saying, God, please be gentle with me. I'm a weenie. I'm a wimp, God. I don't like pain. Please help me. You know I'm a frail man. 
<laughs> I've gone from yes to yes. <laughs> and be nice, please, Lord. Uh, because life's tough. You know? So, um, anyway, I hope that helps a little bit. Uh, okay, so with that, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about suffering. Um, <laughs> I remember I used to do this, uh, I think I still do, uh, this teaching on First and Second Corinthians. God led me early on in my 20s to spend, I think I spent six months reading First and Second Corinthians backwards and forwards. And in reading it was trying, asking this question, what made Paul tick? Not the deeds he did, but who was he? What was he obsessed about? What was it that made him an apostolic leader? What was it that made him fruitful? And so I just went back and forth and back and forth and got a, a lot of leadership stuff from it and a lot of principles from it. And I usually share that in the training schools, um, uh, you know, maybe less and less. But um, anyway, through those deals, I would always um, share these, these uh, you know, the, the tough scriptures like, you know, 2 Corinthians 4, when he said, but we have this treasure in earth and vessels so that the surpassing greatness must be of the power, or the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and, and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in, our, in, your, in, in you. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life works in you. And I would share that, and I was sacrificing by faith in those days. What I mean by that is I was trying to go the extra mile to serve other people and all that stuff, but I would always leave the teaching after a couple of days with the schools, and we'd, you know, the friends of God, we'd talk about heaven, and never, it'd just be, it'd be sweet and powerful. And I would just leave with this thought in the back of my mind, you haven't been through all that yet that Paul went through. Maybe, maybe you're going to have to go the same route he did. And I was like, oh, you know, oh, no, 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 uh, you know. I'd like, I want to sacrifice by faith, not by trial, Lord, please. Um, and, um, and again, <laughs> please hear me. It's almost a joke for me to actually talk on suffering because I've suffered so little. And in no way does my journey look like Paul in the scriptures. I mean, his lists are exhaustive and all that stuff. And um, you, you know what I'm saying. I'm not, this is not, please hear me, I'm not trying to compare anything except to say that the principles of kingdom forward movement and uh, are, come through a crucible. They come through a cross. And, and, and that's not anything to be scared of. Actually, it is the sweetest place you will meet with Jesus in your journey. You don't get any closer to Jesus than in suffering. People have written about it for hundreds of years. Uh, that's being their most intimate place. It is your testimony. If I actually had you share with me the places you met with Jesus the most, I guarantee you 90% of this room would be in your greatest place of pain. That's just, I don't understand it, but it's, 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 I, I, I do. It's the, the flesh and the veil of this world so heavy that suffering breaks the veil and gets you right face to face because that's what you have to have to get through it. You know. Um, so before I get into suffering, let me just say a couple other thoughts on it. As I talked about, I think on the first day I was with you guys, is... I 100% believe in every promise of the New Testament. I am into righteousness, peace, and joy. <laughs> I am into victory in Jesus. 
I am absolutely into the peace of God ruling right in my heart. I am into being more than a conqueror. I am into Jesus has victory over depression and fear and anxiety. I am into every bit of that. I proclaim it over myself. Steve Backlund's, you know, happy statements of, uh, you know, and all that stuff. I'd, I've gone backwards and forwards in those scriptures. I believe every one of them. And I also know that every one of them live in the encasing of a fallen, broken world and a fallen, broken me. So I can apprehend God's peace, righteousness, and joy, but that does not mean that my circumstances will always be perfect as I'm doing that. I may feel like everything's falling apart. My emotions may be absolutely frayed, but there is righteousness, peace, and joy at the bedrock of my soul because that's Christ in me, the hope of glory. And that's what gives me hope when I can't control what's happening in my life. You see what I'm saying? Actually, it becomes deeper when I can't feel it than it does when I can. It has more solidity to it in those ways. So please hear me as we talk about suffering. In no way am I negating a victorious church and a victorious mindset towards the promises of God. What, where I would differ with some people on the victory side is that you can be so in God that you do not experience suffering, and suffering is from the devil and not from God. That is absolutely unbiblical. And let me tell you why. The person of Jesus. Right? Right? We're to imitate Jesus. The person of Paul. Follow me as I follow Christ. John, who, who uh, wrote the book of Revelations, there is no New Testament writer that didn't go through the crucible, and it wasn't because they were living in that time and hour. They are written for our example. But what you see in them is writing victorious letters of a revelation of the grace of God in the midst of a broken, torn world, and out of that having power in their lives to minister back into people that are hurting. Paul said, I am so glad I was comforted by God because now I can comfort you in your place of affliction. I'm so glad I suffered because now with empathy I can love you well. Do you know that people, as much as they want power from you, they need love from you? They're not mutually exclusive. They go together. But people need the compassion of Jesus even as they need the power of Jesus. And as that is coupled in your heart and in my heart more, we become a more full witness of the glory of God than at any other time. Because as I said, not everybody you pray for is going to be healed. And I just can say Please, if you're convicted that you, you don't receive that and you want to believe that, then you go for it. But when, while you're learning and somebody doesn't get healed, please leave them being loved. Please leave them with the presence of Jesus and the comfort of God, even in their affliction. Because that is the Bible. Right? So again, many times people have to swing a little bit to get us out of a doomsday suffering victim mentality to get us to see Jesus. And as they're swinging us up there, amen, thank you, Lord. That's who I listen to when I'm down. I do not listen necessarily to the, if it be thy will, God. I mean, I'm going up when I'm going down. I, I am so, at the, but at the same time, I don't bite the whole apple, man. I don't have to have a one-dimensional theology to be okay with God. Right? Okay, so I'll let you journey with God in that. So as we look to be a nation's changing people, here's two points of clarity biblically. Romans 4, 18 through 22. Romans 4, 18 through 22. 
says this, speaking of Abraham, and remember, we are the Abrahams of the New Testament, right, by faith. Abraham said of himself, Paul speaking of Abraham, verse 18, chapter 4, In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised he was able also to perform. Therefore it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, verse 18, In hope against hope he believed and became the father of many nations. Now, I'm, I want to have a balanced statement in what I'm about to say, so just hang in there if you don't like the first sentence. To take nations, you'll have to go through the door of depression. I do not mean clinical depression. I do not mean chemical imbalance. I'm saying circumstantial hopelessness. You'll have to look the mountain in the eye and all of its downtroddenness and all of what isn't happening and say, God is still God. He will, he will be on the other side of that mountain. There is a hopelessness at times in your journey of faith that you've got to go through. Uh, depression is probably not the wrong word because it's too loaded. You have to go through the door of hopelessness to find and to change the world because there's a reason that people and nations are not transformed. There's a reason that they live in a downtrodden place because the door hasn't been broken down. There hasn't been. And that door demands a life, not just a thought and not just a prayer. And so you'll have to look that which isn't in the eye and say God will still be God and hit that thing over and over and over again even when it doesn't move and say, but God, but God, but God. And that's what made Abraham a man of faith because he said, but God, even though it wasn't happening. And you know, even, I love it where he said he didn't waver in unbelief. And I'm saying, what's wrong? My Bible didn't say that. That guy, that joker missed it, man. You know, uh, he missed it 10 years uh, out, right? Um, but what God saw was his heart of faith, even in the midst of his failure. Do you know what's pleasing to God in the end is faith. I trust you, God. I'm doing the best I can. I made a mistake. Oops. Uh, uh, wrong trust, right? Look, uh, I use my own wisdom, but I'm still going to believe God. You understand what I'm saying? It's not perfection that is pleasing to God. It is faith that is pleasing to God. So... Let's talk about hopelessness and uh, in, in dealing with it. Um, I'm asking God, you know, I'm sitting here, Spirit of God, what story do I share? And I guess we're going to go tangent and we'll come back, or I'm sure it's going to relate to somebody. But I remember um, early on we were running the training school, believing God for great things. There was a, a family... Um, at that time, uh, named Jack and Diane Gaston. Uh, they're actually, they live back in Waco now. And Jack and Diane were idealists. Uh, Jack was a carpenter. Diana homeschooled their kids. Um, they had just had their fifth child. Um, they were 33 years old. And they loved each other. They loved us. They, they would put students up in their home. We didn't have families to take students. They offered that with five kids in their little two-bedroom house. Uh, they just were sacrificial and dear, dear friends. And uh, Diana, Diane started, found a lump on her breast, went in and said that it was cancer. It was not only cancer, it was malignant. Not only was it malignant, but it was at stage four. And 
obviously, we took it as the devil and a challenge from God. We began to meet with them fast, pray. Over the next nine months to a year, we literally laid our lives down. They, at that time, had moved to Gatesville, gave their house to, for our guys to use. Uh, and um, we would travel that hour on the road many times. Me, Jeff Bianchi, and some of you guys know Dr. Mike Yarmark. He was Jack's best friend. We would travel back and forth. Um, uh, we'd get good reports. We'd get bad reports. Many people began to jump in and believe God. And, and uh, so you kind of had the whole gamut. You had the crowd who said, we're, we're not going to say anything other than that she's healed. If you say anything else, you're healed. You're not allowed to talk to us, basically. You had Jack, who was somewhere in the middle. I believe she's going to be healed. God, and, and, and then he asked what we were, where we were on the journey. And um, we said, as we waited on God, we, the three of us, the three guys in our families, we said, listen, what do you feel like God's saying to you? They said, we, they had a scripture out of Luke that she was going to be healed. I said, then I am with you till resurrection, man. I'm with you all the way. So we were believing God. No turning back. We've got a word from God. They're, they have a word from God. We're agreeing with them. So as things got worse, um, we were deeply involved in their lives, taking care of their children, helping them out practically, giving meals, the whole deal. And um, I remember uh, as things were turning worse and Diane was still at home there, we, um, Jack went on a 20-day fast. And all he would do is he would um, go in and he would worship with Diane and then he'd go out to the shed and he'd worship and pray. And we would join him at different hours. We'd rotate. We'd stay overnight uh, for the last 15, 20 days, actually. Uh, on about day 20, um, uh, unless there was a miracle, she was going to die. And um, I had to do a wedding in um, North Dallas. I'm about to step into the wedding. I get the phone call that, uh, that um, it doesn't look like she's going to make it through the night. I do the wedding. I rush back. On my way back, she breathes her last breath. As we all agreed, we were going to pray for her to be raised from the dead. So we uh, asked before we called the coroner. We waited. They waited until I got there. We prayed for her to be raised from the dead. Nothing happened. Um, the kids are all in the house. Uh, it's uh, kind of a surreal scene. And um, eventually called the coroner uh, because she passed away. When I was praying for her to be raised from the dead, and Jeff would say the same experience, I think Mike would as well, as we were there, it was as if life and death was just a, a simple line somewhere. And though she didn't get raised from the dead, I left there with more faith to believe that the dead could be raised than when we'd entered the journey. It, it wasn't less faith, it was more faith because my hope was not in the miracle, my hope was in God who heals and that heaven and earth is just a breath away. Well, what happened in the next two or three days was the group who would refuse to talk about the reality of death or sickness or whatever, um, they came, uh, one of them talked to me and said, hey, we believe God's going to raise us from the dead, um, even though uh, the funeral's coming up or whatever. And I said, hey, guys, that's, that's great, whatever, but please do not, uh, don't stir Jack up. We, we've got five kids here that are needing to grieve and needing to adjust. If she gets raised from the dead while we're doing that, that's great. And, and we will be thrilled, you know. But they didn't do that. They didn't listen. They went in and, and talked to Jack. And then um, uh, we had the day of the funeral. And um, the day of the funeral went um, 
something like this. So you have all the people that are believing God and they're waiting for her to be buried because then they're going to go out that night again and pray for her to be raised from the dead as well. And so at the funeral, Jack gets up and speaks. He's got his five little kids on the front row. We're there with him. And, and he, said, um, he said, you know, there's a lot of questions that I'm asking right now. Some of them God's answering and some of them he's not. He said, but God asked me a question this morning as I prepared for this time. And he said, Jack, will you still believe me? Will you still believe? And he said, I, I've decided on my answer, and my answer is yes. I will still believe God, that he is good and he is right, and even what I don't understand will be okay. That night, the group came over with uh, McDonald's food because they were going to go out to the graveside because that was... Diane's favorite, and they were going to see her raised from the dead, and, and she was going to be able to eat and be raised up, even though we had buried her that day. It was so disconcerting to Jack, and the kids, I think even to this day, are scarred by that experience. I begged them not to. I got in their face. I, I um, put my relationship on the line with some of these folks. Well, she, wasn't she didn't rise from the dead, and all of a sudden, those people, they just kind of drifted off into the woodwork. Some of them fell away from God. Others who stayed with God just wouldn't talk about it and just distanced themselves relationally. And Jack was left to pick up the pieces. I still remember their little one-year-old daughter running around the house saying, when people walk in the door, my mommy's dead, my mommy died, my mommy's dead. Not even know what was going on. I remember the pain of the months that followed. I remember that really it was just a few of us left to care for them and take them through that journey together. Uh, Jack remarried, obviously a friend of ours, actually. They had two more kids. Uh, Grace, who was that one-year-old, is now a freshman at Baylor with uh, Lauren and Hannah, friends with them. She loves Jesus. She's doing great. They had moved away for years to Nashville and just moved back. But... When I think about the suffering that Jack's been through, because it wasn't just that. They had struggles financially. They had struggles relationally. Just when I, when, I, when, I, when I realize the journey that he's been on, I, I try to look back and say, did we miss it somewhere? And we definitely didn't miss it in spirituality. We fasted and prayed with the best of them. We definitely didn't mean it, miss it in believing God. We believed God with the best of them. We, those, those were not misses. Uh, I don't think we missed it actually with at least those that were closer to it, loving friendship and kind of walking it through. Um, but what rocked in us was our theology a little bit. What do we, how do you reconcile healing and suffering? And how do you reconcile the challenges of their life when all they did was sacrifice everything to God? These guys weren't bystanders just hoping that God would, they, they lived out, they've, they have lived out godly lives. How do you reconcile all that suffering? I just want to say it this way. I don't know. But what I do know is that whatever we gave to God remains to this day. Whatever we focused on the person of God, whatever we were willing to learn from God, whatever answers God gave us we ran with, whatever we didn't know we left in the hands of God and did not spend months in a discouraged depression over it. We just said we're going to leave what we don't know, we're going to take what we do know, and we're going to go forward in God and we're going to trust God that He is the resurrection and the life. Diane was with Jesus. The, the only people grieving after her last breath was all of us sitting there. It wasn't her. 
She was gloriously in the presence of the Lord. We were the ones that were grieving and left with the, with the challenges, right? But God is the God of resurrection, and God moves in ways that we do not understand and even above and beyond it. And what I'm so thankful for for Jack and, uh, is that he decided not to become bitter, but to become closer to Jesus. He decided not to spend a lifelong journey of trying to answer questions that God wasn't speaking to, but to just be His. And I have, his, I have more stories of God's healing than I do of those kind of heavy stories. But I find that those heavy stories have impacted my life more than the great stories of healing. And I don't know all that it comes into play, but I think that something about that faith journey prepared us to go into Afghanistan or Pakistan or Iran or all these other, something of that faith journey to not have to have everything perfect to see a breakthrough shaped us in those days. That somewhere the pain of life would not prevent us from believing and prevent us from going on and prevent us from going to the next place in God. Something about that journey shaped us more than the miracles we had seen up to that point because we've seen great miracles. I've seen blind eyes see deaf ears hear more times than I can count. I've seen cancers literally fall off people before my eyes. Tumors, boom, just gone. I've seen legs straighten right before my eyes. I've seen cancer leave. I, you, I have seen miracles of God. You could debate whether I've seen somebody raised from the dead. People who thought they were dead were raised up, but not in an official sense. So I never say that I have because I don't have any official one on that one. But I've seen miracles upon miracles and been so excited, so encouraged, and so empowered to believe that God can do the impossible. But it is not that that has carried the day for me as a follower of Jesus. It is these places of meeting with God and the pain of people's lives that has forged more of who I am. It is my own questioning that I've had to resolve the why question, whether than to stay on it all my life, that has probably shaped more my own walk with God than anything else. Um, so, in hope against hope, Abraham believed and he became the father of many nations. Um, so what does that look like when we feel hopeless? The first thing is, we can't be shocked by it. It's going to come. That's nothing to be scared of. Because we have a victorious warrior, we have the line of the tribe of Judah just ready to take it up a notch on your behalf and to roar back at the enemies that would plague you. But it will come as you try to take mountains that nobody else has taken. It's just a part of the journey. So rather than be shocked, surprised, dismayed, and questioning God, just say, okay, somebody told me that it was coming. The second piece is you are not a victim of the devil or your own flesh. Remember the theology, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God himself created the devil as an angel. He is a fallen angel, and in the end, he is under the foot of Jesus. No demonic assignment, no demonic effort, no demonic prayers, no satanic uh, uh, curse put upon you ultimately wins the day with you as a born-again believer that loves Jesus and believes in the presence and power of God who is in community, not outside of community. There is no demon in hell that can get inside of a of people arm in arm in the name of Jesus standing. That does not mean you can't be wounded. It does not mean that you can't get a hit and run. It does not mean that hurtful things don't happen. But I can just say that if I abide in Jesus, I can trust Him that whatever's happening, there's greater power in Him to overcome it. So I am not a victim. When I take the victim mentality, I am on the slide down the hill. 
And I can just say I have been on that precipice too many times. Many years ago um, now, um, seems not that long ago, um, I uh, was going to India with Abby. She was a teenager. I think she was 13 or 14. And um, I um, uh, had the previous year had what I called a black hole experience where it just seemed like somebody turned out the lights emotionally and mentally. It was shocking to me. I'd never experienced it. Wonder which way it was up. Was I having a heart attack? Is it physio- physiological? Is it psycho- psychological? God, where are you? And ha- came through that. It, it had been several months, and I never had something like that happen again. And I'm on the airplane, and the, 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 the same thing starts happening. Best way I can know it, people describe it as a clinical depression, but not circumstantial. We'd had a great Christmas holiday. We were just getting on the plane headed to India. And, um, and man, it, it became a, a massive struggle. We eventually got to India after all these hours, and I'm just struggling mentally. Just I'm trying to grasp truth, but it's like water running off my brain. I can't. I'm quoting scripture. I'm doing the deal. I've got a little girl here that needs a strong daddy taking her around the world. I'm trying to stay focused, trying to stay in gear as as a dad. We get to this hotel in Delhi, waiting to take the flight up to Bagdogra, where the Franzens live. And uh, I take an Ambien to sleep. I sleep for four hours, and I wake up wide awake as if the devil himself was sitting on the end of my bed. And I feel I'm being choked. I get out the name of Jesus. I finally get out of bed, and I'm thinking, I, what's going on? And the enemy is just pounding, you're done. I got your number. You're done. I don't know if I'm having a physical heart attack. I don't know if it's a, uh, I don't know what direction it's coming from. And, uh, and I've got a little girl sleeping there in bed, and I'm just thinking, I'm going down. She's going to wake up. I'm going to be dead here in this room. Again, the joke is it was probably just a little demon. It wasn't the devil. Uh, but for me, it was big. And it, it was suffocating. And so I went to the bathroom and I prayed and I called out to God. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm quoting scriptures and I'm turning to scriptures I've meditated on for years. And I have to come to the resolve somewhere in the middle of that night that the word of God has to be true. And whatever I'm feeling or experiencing has to be less than that. I, I can't, there is no other option. There's nowhere to run. I can't run out into the street. I can't, uh, I, I don't know what else to do, but God, I choose to believe. And then just waves of discouragement and of lies and, and whatever else. And I remember about seven, eight in the morning, eventually getting Abby up and saying, Abby, we need to call home. And I went down to a little um, place where they make phone calls and, um, and I, I remember calling Ruth Reese, who was my main intercessor, my assistant at that time, and uh, just saying, Ruth, I, I, I need you to pray. I'm, I'm, I'm hurting. Something's not right. She said, I've been up all night already. And, um, um, you know, I just wept. God knows, you know. And uh, you know, poor Abby's sitting there listening on the phone. I called her and I called Kevin and sitting there seeing me weeping, you know. And Daddy, you okay? <laughs> I said, okay, baby. Jesus is going to be good. We're going to be with us. And um, somehow people prayed. I went to the airport. And um, I remember going to the airport just so broken, so tender, just saying, Jesus, you're everything. I don't have, where else can I turn? I can't 
feel you, see you, but you're on the other side of this. That's, that's what I've got to go with. And I remember going up to the lady at the counter, and Abby and I had committed to tell everybody we met about Jesus. I was trying to train her how to share the gospel. <laughs> and I'm sitting there like, oh, Lord Jesus. And I go up to the counter, and I just tell this lady, God loves you. He loves you. Jesus loves you. He cares for you so much. I'm weeping. She's weeping. Just the presence of God. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying much. I'm, we're not getting to the steps of peace with God. I'm just talking about Jesus in my pain, and she is coming under conviction. I mean, God's doing something, you know. And, and I just leave her with a track. I didn't pray a prayer with her. I said, bless you, you know. And I, I walk over to the, and, and I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking, is this what it takes to make me soft? God, what are you doing to me, you know? We go that three-hour flight to Bagdogra, then the five-hour drive up the mountain to the Himalayas, to the spiritual zoo of, of uh, Darjeeling, Hindu, Buddhism, Muslim. It's just a map. Nate's been out there with me. It's a, it's a crazy place. And, uh, and I was there, and I remember going up the hill, and um, Brett and Jackie were kind of in a tough spot, and there was some correction that needed to come. And I, needed, and I was planning on being kind of the tough leader. I wasn't so consciously thinking this, but I, you know, I need to tell them what's what. And I remember in the middle of the night, God spoke to me. And as I'm there weeping for asking God for mercy on my life, and God spoke to me, be gentle with them. They've laid their lives down. They've been in a tough place. Be gentle with them. Basically, I was saying, you don't know the hell they've been through. You don't know. Don't act like you do. Love them. I mean, of course, I love them. They're my deepest friends, but you don't know. Be gentle. Because they've been through their own spiritual battles living up there. To get up there and, you know, um, I met Jackie when... um, when I was 17 years old, I had just gotten saved, and I was at a student council camp in San Marcos, Texas. She was in student council in Leander or something. I met her because she was a believer. I remember us talking and meeting and her talking about her desire to go to Baylor or whatever. And um, so I've known Jackie. So I was 17 years old. I'm 47. I've known Jackie now for 30 years. We met at Baylor. Um, she went through bulimia. Anorexia had to leave school for a year. She went through her own struggles. But I never, I've never known Jackie not to love Jesus. She was just always was sharing Jesus. She loves Jesus. I mean, whatever struggles she's had in her life, she loves Jesus. I met Brett when he was a freshman at Baylor. He was deeply depressed, all his neck problems, physical problems. I remember us, him wanting to meet me because he wanted to be discipled. And I remember meeting in this parking lot at the Village Apartments and us sitting in the car we met for the first time. And we were talking about... Uh, the presence of God and what God can do and God's desire for the nations. And I just remember the presence of God filling that car. And for eight years, Brett and I met once a week if we were both in town, for eight years uh, before they went off uh, to the nations. And, you know, we're all very different. We are very different people and all that. And I bug them, they bug me at times. You know, we're, we're, we're very real, and, but we deeply love each other and have given our lives to walk together. And um, I was in this place I'd never been before. I was like, I am just, I don't, what in the world is going on mentally? What's happening? I can't grab the truth. I can't grab the gospel. I, what's going on? And the 
the, the years of love and relationship and the years of meditating on the Word somehow came together and just carried me through those days. And I could wake up at 3 in the morning and go in and say, hey guys, I need you to pray for me. No question. It wasn't, I didn't have to be tough guy. I didn't have to be leader. I didn't have to be anything. These are my friends. They'd experienced the same thing in trying to change the world, reach the Tibetan Buddhist world. We wept together. We prayed together. We worshiped together. And uh, when I came off the mountain and got back, I remember being in the airport, it all lifted. It was about a seven-day window of hell. Frida Lee was uh, on the team, and Frida, about five days in, uh, we were in a team meeting. She just began to weep as we were interceding for the nation and all this stuff. And I said, Frida, you okay? You know, and she said, when you were down in New Delhi, I had a dream that night that you were being run over by a truck, that literally you had been hit by a truck and run over. And she said, I thought you had died. And she said, when you called that morning to tell me where to meet you, she said, I knew you had lived and, and that maybe the intercession had helped or something. And she said, I uh, was just sitting here praying. As we were praying, God showed me a picture that the truck had passed and it's over and you raised up. She said, I, I see the other side. It put such faith in my heart. I didn't feel any better, but it put such faith in my heart. And within two days, it lifted and, you know, we were on our way back home. I've had that experience a handful of times uh, over the last seven years, sometimes short, sometimes longer. Um, sometimes I can gauge why it comes because of weariness or whatever. Sometimes I can't. And um, I still don't understand it all. Um, but it really doesn't matter anymore whether I understand it or not. Uh, God has transformed my life through this journey probably in something that nothing else would. Somewhere in these challenges that happen here or there, I experience God in a fresh way of faith and depth like I never have. Oh, they found different things, you know, physically wrong and things they've adjusted and adapted and so on and so forth. There's, there's a practical side to some of this. But in the end, I would say nothing has been a greater tool in my life to keep me closer to Jesus and more on track with his purpose and plan for my life than that. You know, someone said one time, when you're experiencing this, do you feel like just chunking God and just going into the world? And this is not a holy statement, but it is the truth. It's never crossed my mind. I mean, what pleasure is there in some sin? It, will it really get rid of the pain? It won't. It's not just a theological belief. I don't feel like it will. I know that it won't. So I've never been tempted to go that direction because there's only one place to go. You hold the words of eternal life. Where else can I go? I mean, where else are you going to go to find refuge than from the rescuer who created? There is no other place to go than God himself. You can try that other angle. You'll be more discouraged and broken than you were when you started. And that's not a biblical truth. That is a reality. And uh, 
Yeah, so I don't, I don't know how all that plays out, but to say that there's only one place to go, and it's, it's God. You know, I mean, that's what we all signed up for, right? That in the end, He's victorious and glorious, and whether I can control my thoughts or not, whether I'm in a black hole experience, whether it's the devil or my flesh or some kind, doesn't really matter, actually. What matters is God's present. And of course, I always say, God, search me and try me. Is there anything? I mean, I <laughs> talk about check under the hood, man. Physically, mentally, emotionally, financially, relationally. I've repented of everything and everything I even thought about that could happen. I mean, I, there is, I mean I'm clean, man, in those situations. I am motivated to be absolutely 100% clean, ears attentive. There's nothing I wouldn't do to feel better. But sometimes I don't feel better. And I have to say, one time God spoke to me this. He said, um... If you keep focusing on feeling better, I don't think you're going to get there. But if you'll focus on trusting me more, you'll always be free. So I'm trying to learn to trust God more. And he's meeting me in a wonderful way. And he has met me, and he is, and he will meet me. And again, just so it doesn't get too heavy here, I can go months on end without this happening. I can go a year, year and a half. I went 18 months one time without it happening. I don't know why it does. But I know I've prayed, uh, like Paul did, Lord, take this from me. This is absolutely ridiculous. I, agree, I don't agree with this. I, cut every, I, this is, I have no agreement with this in Jesus' name. But, um, but it's still there. And so I agree that God is good uh, in the midst of it. Right? So, here we go. Learn to overcome depression. Hopelessness. It will come. You are not a victim of the devil. You are not immobilized. You know, what, you know what I do when, when it gets the worst? I said, you know what I'm called to do? I'm called to meet with Jesus today. I know I'm called to be a husband. I'm called to love my wife. I know I'm called to be a father. And I know I'm called to serve somebody, love somebody, lead. Therefore, there is grace from God to do that which God's called me to do. Now, nothing, anything else I can't determine. But I can do that which God's called me to do even though I seem to be emotionally immobilized or something awkward is going down physically that I cannot explain. Does that make sense? Therefore, even in my darkest places, I've still been able to operate in the Spirit based on what God has called me to do because that is who I am. I am not a conglomeration of my weaknesses or demonic assignments or whatever they might be. That is not who I am. I am a follower of Jesus and therefore there is grace to be whatever God's called me to be on a daily basis no matter what's coming at me. I do not make that as a prideful, tough guy statement. It's just where you have to live. What's the option? Where else are you going to live? You know, There's always grace to love somebody. There's always grace to be who God's called you to be, even if your feelings or your physical life. I mean, golly, Paul was planting churches chained to a wall. I mean, if you say you can't plant a church, you're wrong. I mean, uh, you know, he could worship God, love Jesus, disciple the God next to him in prison. So you're, you're really free to do everything in the Bible, regardless of circumstances. Uh, so... Um, Fourth thing on this, third one was you're not immobilized. Fourth is self-awareness is important, knowing what pushed the buttons that got you there. So to say this is just a demonic assignment is a joke. God is transforming me to understand complexities in me that uh, need to change. So God's always at work in me, even if the devil's the one attacking me. You see what I'm saying? There's always a work of God going on. And so I don't spend much time talking to the devil, I spend the majority of my time talking to God, almost all my time actually, 
and just making sure, is there any adjustments, buttons, things I need to learn, people I need to humble myself to, things that, God, you talk to me because you're my leader. You're the one who cares for me. I, you, you tell me what to do and I'm, I'm with you. So God's always at work. Just ask him. If you're not hearing anything, then he's saying, hey, it's a great time to live by faith. Right? Okay. Number five, you are not pressured by God. People cause pressure. You are not on a performance track. What I mean by that is, if you're feeling pressure in the midst of your trial to be something or to do something, that's not God. The shepherd leads and the butcher pushes. Larry Stockdale tells the story of being in Israel and, and saying, hey, uh, see the shepherd up on the hill over there. Is, is, that, is that what's going on? Is that what t- talking to me about a shepherd trying to learn? And he said, he said no, 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 that guy's not the shepherd because the sheep were all, were all, you know, all wrought up and there was a guy pushing him. He said, that's the butcher. If he's behind him, he's the butcher. If he's ahead of him, he's the shepherd. Right? The, <laughs> the devil's the one with the pressure on. The shepherd's the one trying to lead you to paths of righteousness and still waters and places of grace and is leading you tenderly and lovingly. So, for, so to take the condemning, you know, you, you deserve this, you got this, da, 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 you know, all that stuff, man, that's from hell. That's not God. If God's got a correction, he's bringing it in love and he's bringing it because you want help. And he will speak to you from a place of, of relief, not from a place of discouragement. Does that make sense? Whatever you've done in life, there are consequences to our lives. But in the end, a repentant heart only gets grace, not condemnation or destruction. Does that make sense? So I've known God only to give me grace. Even if he's pointing out something in a very, and it's hurting me, I know that his only goal is to bring grace and nothing else. Um, okay, that's kind of heavy. Let's go to Revelation 2. Let's go to Revelation 2. Because there's two issues to changing the world. Uh, You've got to overcome hopelessness. You've got to go through the door. That does not mean, please hear me. And what I want to balance this with. Do not be fearful. Do not fear in Jesus' name. If you're fearing right now, that is the devil and not God talking to you. Secondly, you may never experience anything that I've, ever, that I've talked about. This is my journey. Don't compare yourself to me. And to be quite honest, I am such a wimp, it probably was a little demon and not as, as hairy and black as it sounds. It's probably been a lightweight thing and my makeup is just so sissified, I've got to work through it at a different level. I don't know what your journey is going to be. It's going to be different than mine. And what I do know is that God has been faithful, is faithful, it, uh, will be faithful, um, is absolutely abounding with grace in every situation, no matter what comes your way. And if you try to cushion yourself from pain, you're never going to advance in God. The pain will come. Don't worry about it. Just go with God, and there'll be days of great abundance, and there'll be days of great challenge, but God will be with you in both. This is huge. Do not try, at 25 years old, do not get fearful what may happen at 45. That's ridiculous. You may not make it to 45. And you wasted all your time worrying. <laughs> you know what I mean? And if you're worried about not making it to 45, then get a grip on eternity. I mean, <laughs> really, I mean, that's where you got to spend some time meditating on the goodness of God and, and all that he has for you. I have this promise from God that I'm going to be 80. I mean, I want to get out of here before then, actually. 
I'm like, oh, no. And you're saying, oh, we glorious of this problem. You know, and I may live to be 100. I don't know. But and just by the way, if I die before I'm 80, the devil didn't get me. I'm going to walk with God until whatever that day is. God told me to prepare to be 80. He didn't say I would be 80, right? You know what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm living in that direction, but don't let that rock you either. You got what I'm saying here, guys. You are free. You are blessed. Everything God's teaching you is just glorious. Can I just say, for 15 years of ministry, I got up every day thinking I was the most blessed person in the world and everybody else had the worst job in the world. That I was so blessed. I woke up for 15 years with absolute joy and zeal and zip about what was going on. And then somewhere in there, some other things needed to happen in my life to adjust some things. And I went through trials during those 15 years, but I went through joy. I mean, like, great, these are trials that are changing me more in the likeness of Jesus. Hallelujah. I'm learning. I'm growing. We're dealing with stuff. There was grace and strength to do it all. And then, you know, kind of needed some adjustments, and we went another angle with it the last few years or so. Does that make sense? So may you be blessed with 15 years, at least, of just zip and joy every day you get up, right? Okay. Trying to... Yeah, Charles, you got a question? I was just going to ask real quick with your journey with the, with the moment. Right. What does community look like in that? Yeah, great question. You know, th there's two sides. He said, what does community look like when you're going through that difficult time? Let me say it this way. There's people with good hearts that want to project on you their own journey. And there's people that you trust that want to hold your arms up. What I mean by that is when I talk about this, invariably, the reason I don't talk about that often is not because I'm not, I'm wide open, there's something I want you, but people come up to me and say, oh, I totally understand, you know, and, I'll, and, and with good hearts, try to be the answer, you know, whether it's a natural remedy or some medical thing or some book they read, and, and it just gets a little awkward when everybody's trying to fix you. The balance of that is you have to have a tight team of people that you would trust with your life, that you can say anything and communicate anything, and they know you, they know your life, and you don't have to justify yourself. So I have a group of people that I can go to, pray with, talk to about anything in life. They know me. They know my heart. They know that I hate this. They know that I'm not in any way invoking this. They know that it's just something that we need to walk through together. And I, I have that tight-knit group of people. So community is big time uh, in, in, in the journey. Um, but I don't go around sharing with everybody or it just gets awkward, you know. Because let me say it another way. Um, uh, I'm doing great. <laughs> and I'm going to find God in whatever's going on. And if I communicate things with, to everybody that they're not going through or that they sometimes it shakes them for me as a leader I don't go to my kids and unpack all this they need dad they need the leader that God's calling me to be in our home they need stability and consistency they would say dad uh, as they hear in retrospect some of the struggles I can't believe you were going through that struggle you were just it made you sweeter you were kinder you were more loving and that's what they need they don't need me to throw up on them People that are mature at my stage in life, who are going through, who, who understand, who are not there to judge me or one-up me or whatever, those are the people that I go to. Does that make sense? And at times, God tips off different intercessors in a very wonderful way, and they come to me with words from the Lord that just bring breath to my soul. God's been so faithful to do that.
so everybody needs a small group community, but you just don't go up throwing up everywhere. It just doesn't help. That makes sense. And again, I actually feel a little awkward sharing this because I can't tie it up and answer everybody's question, but you know, glory to God, we'll be fine. Okay, so hopelessness. You gotta look hopelessness in the eye and you have to go through that door, victorious in Jesus, change the world. The second door you've gotta go through is the world. The world. In Revelation 2, verse 19. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants, my bondservants, astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Let's pick it up now in verse 24. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, this is the letter to the church at Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, the teaching of Jezebel, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them. I place another burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have done, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. So Abraham becomes a father of many nations by walking through the door of hopelessness. The church at Thyatira is being challenged to have authority over the nations by overcoming the world and its manipulations. Jezebel is not a manipulative woman. Jezebel is a spirit of the age that is based on sensuality and control around idolatry. We live in a Jezebel society. The Western world is Jezebel, is Thyatira. This was a good church. It said, it said you, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance that you did, but I have this against you. You've accepted the teachings of Jezebel and have been manipulated by her, and you say it's okay. So they're letting the world and its immoralities get into the body of Christ and into the work of God. So let me say it this way. We are committed to holiness and integrity in our lives so that sensuality will not rule us so we have life in our bones to speak to a broken world, the message of a kingdom that is better than that. And if we can't break the back of immorality and sensuality, we have no authority in the nations, you guys. So you can say, uh, well, that's legalistic to somebody. It is not legalistic to me when it is hurting me, when it's idolatry and it's sensuality. You can do whatever you want, but you can't have authority in the nations and do that too. And nothing will break your heart more or your family or the people you lead than you making, uh, not dealing with your own sexuality or not dealing with your own worldliness and materialism. And you find those idols trapping in on you and you're, you guys are treading water and wondering why you're not getting any action. And many times it's because of the sensuality. You know, I remember in Uzbekistan when I used to, I went in and out of there two, three times a year and we had a team there. And there was a South African guy who was kind of the, one of the first guys on the scene, church planter and everything else. And um, I stayed at his home, and I remember one night walking in, and uh, they were watching the movie A Few Good Men. And um, it's some uh, uh, war movie with uh, Richard Gere or something. And, um, and I walk in, and they said, hey, join us. Sit down and watch the movie with us. I sit down for a minute, and they're talking about sex acts, and they're talking about this stuff. And I just got up and walked out of the room. And he said, what are you doing, judging us? I said, no, man, I'm not. I said, I said that's cool. You just, I said, I, I just, I can't do it, you know. Our relationship was strained the rest of the time. But what happened in 
the missions community there in Uzbekistan was that the big deal on Friday and Saturday nights was to watch movies together. And they would watch movies that were popular by anybody's standards, but were edgy in sensuality, materialism, and violence. And they were trying to take on a Muslim nation that was breaking out into freedom for the first time. And they wondered why people were falling into sin, why things weren't making headway, because the harvest field was so ripe. And why, why was our team advancing and other people's weren't? And all they had was, you guys are judging us because you're not doing what the social crowd of Uzbekistan's doing in the missions community. And I'm thinking, why in the world would you have those movies as the centerpiece of your entertainment when you're out fighting the devil and hell itself on a daily basis? That's duplistic. Can I just say every mission field in the world has that social group that they're going to invite you into that watches those kind of movies? Cartoon the Sudan, I guarantee you. Dark, oppressive Sudan, and that's what happens in the community. Everybody watches worldly, carnal, sensual movies to get a break from the tension of the culture in advancing the kingdom. Do you think that's helping? It's absolutely eating away at the authority that you have. We are absolutely committed to not being legalistic. As I said, it is embarrassing to me if you try to ask me what movie is okay. Please don't do that. Just go to God, please, and whoever your community is. But at the same time, you are a fool to think you can dip into idolatry and sensuality and have power on your life. You can experience the power of God and be as sensual as you want. You can see miracles and be as sensual as you want, but you can't build the kingdom from the ground up against the gates of hell and do it. So how does somebody who moves in the power of God dramatically be sensual and everything else? Because they're gifted by God. They're anointed by God and they've learned to traffic in the Spirit and to help other people. Why does God do that? I don't know, but somehow He just seems to love people more than the vessel. He loves the vessel, but you know what I'm saying. He loves people, so it still just happens. And, and I just want to say, when people say, well, you know, it's just the anointing of God and that guy's not accountable. Let me tell you something. When people... Tangent, that's important. People say, why won't you let somebody come speak? Why won't you let this person come? I, in my gut, if I'm hearing somebody or watching somebody preach, I don't care how powerful they are in God. If I have a gut feeling that something isn't clean, I am not attaching my wagon to that engine, and I'm not attaching this movement to that engine. I don't care. You, and people will say, well, you're just not open enough, or you're not, um, that's just too weird for you, and you're not willing to be weird or whatever. I, you are not in my quiet time. I'm as weird as they get. And the deal is, though, I have to lead a people that I do not want to distract from the person of Jesus. And when somebody is up there and doing their thing, and, and I have a gut check, I will not let them, I am a father or a pastor, if I will not let them take care of my kids, if I will not have them come over and babysit my kids, I will not put them in front of you as a testimony of what you're supposed to be. Because you'll start mirroring off of them and you'll start saying, well, it's okay that they're in sensuality and sin because they have power on their lives. It's not okay with God. And you know what I'm saying. So, um, where was I? We want to have authority over the nations, not just to have a good time. We don't want a meeting. We want transformed cities. So we're going to have to take the way of the cross and the way of God. And we're going to have to say, God, you're bigger than X hopelessness, discouragement. God, you're above all that. God, you are 
uh, I refuse sensuality to have my soul because there's people that need to be rescued from it. And I'm choosing not to do thus and so, not because I feel loved or not loved, not because I'm legalistic or not, but because I care about my destiny and my calling in life and I'm not willing to give it over to some cheap sensuality that only lasts for a moment. And you have permission as a leader and influencer to challenge other people. Your friends. You see, sometimes somebody will tell me something about he's doing wrong, and they'll say, you need to talk to him. And I'll say, that's ridiculous. If I come in, it's the heavy father authority thing, right? And then everybody freaks out, oh, I didn't feel loved. And when I was three years old, my dad was mean, and you're just like him. And therefore, you're wrong, even though I'm in sin, right? And all that stuff goes down. But peer to peer is where it really goes down. It is brother to brother, sister to sister. That's where real accountability happens. Even if I tell somebody they're doing something wrong, I don't see them day to day. You do. Step up to the plate. Be a woman or man of God and step up to the plate and say what you need to say. And if you're wrong, wrestle it through together. That's what community is all about. Uh, you know, a faith for the wounds of a friend. If you've never wounded a friend, you're not a friend. You're not. So... Peer-to-peer accountability is what's going to allow us. And peer-to-peer are the ones that, you know, who holds me up in discouraging times? Friends that I've walked with. It's peers uh, that, that, that I walk with. Those are the people that hold me up. And who are the people that, uh, uh, that, need, that I am accountable to in areas of sensuality, materialism, etc.? Those are peers. Those are friends. I have, those are the people that speak into my life. And, of course, I'll receive it from anybody, but that's who I walk with. That's who I'm accountable with. You've got to have peer relationships that will challenge you in these areas so that you don't miss out on your destiny. Why is God asking us to walk away from sensuality? Because He doesn't want you to miss your destiny. He doesn't want you to miss the goodness of God. He doesn't want you to have some cheap presence of flesh that will rob you of the presence of the living God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's New Testament. So that you will be filled there's a purity piece and a depth piece and a builder piece that God's calling us to that is bigger than the power piece. There is, remember, there's anointing upon. You've got it. You're anointed by God. God's trying to wake us up in this hour that we're all anointed by God. We have power on our lives. Use it. Go for it. Learn it. But that anointing upon does not give you the anointing within. The anointing within is cultivated through character, brokenness, and the cross. That anointing and weight and authority is what builds nations. And that's what God's wanting to do in us. So, there. Help us, Jesus. So that's what I got. Um, let me pray for you, and i got to walk out. So, Jesus, um, love my friends. Just love them. Just let them be loved. Um, I just rebuke fear in the name of Jesus. Fear will not have anybody in this room, in Jesus' name. They are called by faith to meet with you, to be carried by you, to be strengthened by you, and and Lord, I just ask, please, anything I've said that is hurtful and not helpful, that can be misconstrued, would you straighten it out by the Holy Spirit? Would you translate it rightly to help, to love, to empower, to strengthen my friends? Lord Jesus, you are where we go. You are the source of all life. You are good. You are loving. You are kind. You meet us even in the places when we don't know which way is up. You carried us. I'm alive today because you have been faithful and you have been awesome. Lord, it is your grace that carries us and sustains us. So I pray, in whatever journey you have us on, that the joy of the Lord would be our strength. 
that the abundance of God would be the expectation of our hearts, that every day your favor would be on us. And even in your discipline, we would know that the other side of it will be nothing but glory and goodness. God, I pray for a resurrection mentality and not a victim mentality. I pray for a goodness mentality and not a sadness mentality. I pray that you would lift us up uh, even as things are changing and rearranging. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for your goodness here today. In your name, amen.